I think that's really what I'm trying to do through making this work is just trying to say like, here's where I am and where we sort of all are on this continuum of time and space and history. And, you know, our lives are, our lives matter. Our lives are important. Print friends, and welcome to the 71st episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release weekly podcasts with people in the print world who are doing something a bit beyond the expected. So please subscribe on your podcast listening app of choice. You can also find Pine Copper Lime on Instagram and Facebook. And you can sign up for our monthly newsletter with print news from around the world, all at pinecopperlime.com. We also have a Patreon page, on which supporters toss a buck or two in our tip hat every month, and they help keep PCL bringing you hot printmaking content. You can also get neato thank yous like stickers and totes. And if that sounds like something you'd like to know more about, check out the link in the show notes. It's also totally okay if you don't want to know more about that, because times are weird, and if you just want to listen to the show and enjoy, do it. Print friends, I am very excited to tell you that Pine Copper Lime, two years in, finally has merchandise. We have stickers and totes and shirts and baby onesies for the little budding printmaker in your life. We have some with the PCL logo, of course, but there's also various other kind of inside print jokes. So if you want to confuse your friends and family with a shirt that reads Albrecht, Kate, Francisco, and Jose, you can find those on TeePublic. Just check out the link in the show notes. Printmaking forever. Shun the non-believers. Pine Copper Lime is brought to you by Speedball Art Products who've been bringing you a diverse range of high-quality products to your creative practice since 1997. Products like their fabric block printing ink. They've seen this line adopted by even the most dedicated traditional oil ink-based lovers, especially when people are printing on merch or printing at live open-air markets and public events. So if you're dreaming about that first post-COVID market, this is a great product to check out to get started. To find out more, or to learn where you can pick up a can of your new favorite ink, visit speedballart.com. Just check that link in the show notes. My guest this week is Stephanie Santana. Stephanie is a Brooklyn-based printmaker, fabric artist, and archivist. We'll talk about her finding art through MySpace, taking up printmaking through an illustration gig, historical textile traditions carrying religious and ancestral meaning, and creating archives with old family photos, as well as how becoming a mother has affected her practice. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to flip through the old family photo albums with Stephanie Santana. Hi Stephanie, how's it going? Hey, I'm good, how are you? I'm good, thank you for joining (laughs) me for the early morning in Brooklyn. I've been really enjoying like kind of setting up these calls with people where it's like morning for them and evening for me because I don't know I think there's just something sort of special about that 
that time when people are kind of beginning or ending their day. And I'm just, yeah, I'm glad we could work it out and that we get a chance to to talk about you and your practice and probably a bit of the insanity of 2020, I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a pretty calm, quiet morning here. So I'm, I'm excited to talk and Ex- chat. Excellent. Well, before we kind of dive into talking specifically about your practice, would you mind just giving a little bit of an introduction and letting people know who you are and where you are, although we already said Brooklyn. Um, And, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, how would you describe what it is that you do? So my name is Stephanie Santana. I'm based in Brooklyn, and I'm a textile artist, surface designer, and printmaker. And um, I mostly work with screen print, and lately I've been printing a lot of family photographs onto fabric and layering that with other techniques, like embroidery and painting, um, and just working with that a lot before getting into quilting a finished piece. As we said, you're in New York now, but where Mm -hmm. did you grow up and what role did art play in that part of your life? So, yeah, I grew up in the Seattle area, which I know you're familiar with from your work with Davidson Galleries. Um, Yeah, so my growing up, my favorite thing was writing and illustrating my own stories. And I did all kinds of craft projects, like making those pot holders that you weave and paint by number um and so on and we visit the seattle art museum a lot so i was aware of art and i I was really aware of artists like jacob lawrence and faith ringgold tar beach was one of my favorite books as a kid and it Mm. still is to this day so i feel like i was introduced to art early on and had a lot of exposure to it but it wasn't something that i thought about as seriously in terms of a career or developing a practice until later in life but i just had a lot of fun with it as a kid So how did that shift sort of end up happening for you where you went from just having that kid-like experience of getting to do a little bit of this and a little bit of that to realizing this is something that you were really going to dedicate a big part of your life to? It's kind of a, it's an interesting story because I really didn't do a lot of art making seriously throughout much of my teens or my early twenties even, I would Mm -hmm. say. I think when I really started getting back into it, was when I was in school, I was studying communications and um, I had a telemarketing job. So (laughs) it was a lot of just like, I mean, it wasn't traditional telemarketing, but it was more fundraising. So we would call alumni and say, hey, you know, this is Stephanie from Western Washington University. And we'd kind of ask them for donations. And so I just started kind of doodling, which I always have done. You know, I, I had a calculus class when I was in high school where the teacher was like, I don't, I don't know if you're really picking up on this calculus. You take beautiful notes. I mean, that was that was a weird memory from high school. But so I just I started doodling on paper and just drawing things again and um, like posting my work on MySpace because I had a MySpace profile at the time, which is actually um, how I ended up meeting my husband is through MySpace. Oh my and gosh. He actually was one of the the main people that encouraged me to get back into making art more seriously. And this was this was years ago. This was. I think I was 20, 21 or so, because it was always something that had been something that I enjoyed doing, but it just wasn't in the forefront because I was kind of taught to believe like, oh, you need to have a more serious job. So mm-hmm. I don't know. That was just my family in particular. Um, yeah. So I went from that to as I moved out here. So I moved out here to Brooklyn in 2007 
And that was a time where, you know, there was a lot, I mean, there's always a lot happening in terms of art in New York, but just Mm -hmm. that exposure to people making art just on like a more, on a smaller scale here in New York, like in the, like the Brooklyn scene and just my, my husband's family is very, you know, they're a family of artists. So just, that was just sort of this, this really important time for me to really dive into all of that. And I started really enjoying working with patterns. Um, So to backtrack a little bit, in 2011, 2012, I I worked on a film called An Oversimplification of Her Beauty, Hmm. which was directed by Terrence Nance, who also um, did uh, Random Acts of Flyness on HBO. I don't Mm -hmm. know if you've heard of that. Yeah, that I have Um, heard of. So. Yeah, so he was looking for people to do illustrations and animations, and he asked me to do animation, and I was like, I'm not really an animator, but I can, you know, I can do illustrations. So I did a series of illustrations in Photoshop and just layered a lot of patterns, and so he ended up animating that. But I really realized through that experience and through some of the work that I was doing on my own, just doing collage work and pattern texture, textures, that I really enjoyed textiles and pattern and color. So... I started taking workshops at Textile Art Center, which is now where I'm based at the studio here. Mm-hmm. And they're just incredible. They have amazing instructors who are really knowledgeable. So I was studying things like natural dyeing from Natalie Sapka, who she does a lot of really beautiful marbling and she's a bookbinding artist. I started studying block printing. And from that, a few years later, I moved into studying textile and surface design at the Fashion Institute of Technology um, here in New York. Mm. And that was just a really beautiful introduction because we were required to take a few classes on screen printing. Um, so I actually started out, and that's how I really came into printmaking, was as a textile designer. Yeah. So I started out taking screen printing classes and learning to print and repeat on yardage tables which obviously is something I still do. And I was really excited about that because it teaches you to really appreciate the labor that goes into making printed fabric. And I'm always interested in learning these foundational techniques because, you know, until recently, screen printing was one of the primary ways that a surface design was applied to fabric. Mm -hmm. So I didn't, yeah, I didn't start out learning to print on paper. I'm actually more comfortable printing on fabric, even though I do print on paper now. um, And I, you know, I addition on paper, but I had a, a professor at FIT who really challenged me to view screen printing as a medium. And, you know, my I think before that, my view of screen printing, I'd taken some screen printing classes here and there, but it was just, I didn't really know there was this whole other range of textures and colors that you could achieve through screen printing. So by working in that lab, I, I learned to bring more of my hand into the work and, and work with photographs and the way that we create positives, both by hand and Photoshop it just allowed me to, to learn to be a little bit more subtle about the color and texture and, and be a little bit more experimental with it. So I had no idea that you came to printmaking through textile, which is really mm-hmm. interesting because I think we mentioned when we were sort of chatting via email before that I feel like I haven't spoken with someone who has textile as a huge part of their practice before, which, you know, this is like two years into the podcast and printmaking and textiles, as you say, are so interconnected as until you know until really recently like you were using print like traditional printmaking to make these patterns and then of course in many places in the world they still do it and then in you know sort of bespoke clothes they're still doing it as well so 
it's um it's interesting to hear yeah that you came from printing on fabric to printing on paper do you see these sort of as like different sides of your practice or do you kind of see them as interwoven or how do they kind of interact for you I would say that I do see them as different because when I print on paper it's really you know creating an addition and and creating something that it's just, you know, I want it to be as consistent as possible, of course. Yeah. So whereas when I print on fabric, I will work with the same image multiple times because there's so much work that goes because, I you know, I burn the screens myself and that is a lot of work and I've made a lot of mistakes with mm-hmm. that, you know, like emulsion being old and, you know, all kinds of things that, you know, can happen um, in that process. So it's like once I get a good image <clears throat> on the screen, I, I want to make sure I utilize that. And so I will print, you know, I, I don't want to overdo it, but I'll do like 10 images in different colors. And it's really, because I'm a textile designer as well, I think in terms of color trials, and I think we, we all do in terms of art making, but, you know, I'll dye a certain piece of fabric green, and then I'll print with red on it, or I'll, you know, kind of, I'll play around with the color a lot because I do dye my own fabric as well and mix my own inks and all of that. So it's just more, it just feels more organic to me to work with textiles because I'm really just playing around with like the colors and the forms mm-hmm. and just kind of being a little bit more intuitive about it versus on paper, I feel like it's very planned and it's, you know, this is, I'll do a lot of trials, but then once yeah. I get to the finished piece, that's kind of where I'll go with it. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. And then the way that like, once something's on paper, it just sort of seems to make this leap into like, now it is art. Now it's going to be additioned, right? Like, it's like, this can go in a frame and hang on a wall. And it just has like a really different energetic feel to it or a place like a place in society or something like that. If it's on paper. Yeah. 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 Which I love as well. Like I, I absolutely love works on paper, but I, yeah, I think with, with textiles, I've kind of moved into a space where I'm making things that are just sort of unfinished, you know, mm-hmm. because with a lot of my pieces now are quilted and it, traditionally with quilting, you know, you want to have binding on it. You want to piece it together in this very sort of regimented way. Whereas I'm sort of just like, I haven't put binding on a lot of them because I'm like, I like the way that it feels when it's just, it's a little bit unfinished and a little frayed. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm still trying to experiment and explore and, and figure out what that means for me. But it's been a lot of fun because I am getting back into embroidery with those pieces and I have not done that in maybe nine years. I think the last time I really did embroidery, I was, I wasn't doing it as part of the quilting practice. It was more just, you know, sort of drawing with thread on pieces of fabric that I had because I'm always collecting fabric scraps and Mm. just, you know, fabric that I can work with. And so what do you think it was kind of about, textile and particularly like printing with textiles because you know not every form of textile work really has such a strong printmaking element to it what do you Mm -hmm. think it was about that process that kind of pulled you in and that you ended up dedicating your practice to it I think I I often look to historical textile traditions and the way that cultures throughout history would embellish a piece of cloth or given a symbolic meaning for example you know, the cloths that are adorned with the dinker symbols that are traditionally found in Ghana. I think just the surface design element of it, you know, you see a lot of block printing in Jaipur and India, um, which I also went to in 2014 to study block printing and learn about 
the carving process and all that. I just think it's it's really beautiful and there's so much meaning in those pieces of fabric because it's not just something that's being worn as decoration. There's a there's a spiritual element to it and I really feel like that is a a part of my practice is there's there's some sort of spiritual element to it because even though I mean I'm I'm working with photographs for the most part that are from my family archives and some of them include like my mother and my aunt who are still here with us but some of them the the body work that I've been working with recently is centered around my aunt Bootsy who actually passed last year Mm. and so it's it feels like ancestral work too and sort of meditating on and healing some of those ancestral things that Mm. yeah I'm trying to think think through how I want to say this yeah but yeah um yeah I think it's it's working through um just meditating on personal history but then also collective history um because there's I think when I look at some of the the photographs and I think a lot of black folks would say the same when you know you're familiar with uh Gordon Parks photographs are you no no or just, oh, okay or not so, not by name anyway like maybe okay, if I was so to see them was, yeah yeah so let me think of another way to say that so Gordon Parks I'm familiar with his work just over the years of him being um he works for Life magazine and I think he was the first black photographer there and also he lived in Seattle for a period of time but he is photographer who really documented a lot of black life. I think he he really felt his his role was to sort of shed light and sort of bring a humanity to photography and really showing the lives of, of black folks um, in particular. And so when I look at my family photographs, I think a lot about the collective history of black folks, particularly in this country, and then even globally as part of the African diaspora. So I think a lot of what I'm doing when I'm working with these photographs, it has, they have a personal significance to me, but then also sort of a, a spiritual and symbolic meaning. Um, because I think like, for example, the piece that I did recently where it's my aunt Bootsy and uh, my aunt and my mom sitting together in a living room um, and just really showing just the interior lives of black folks, I think is, mm. is important to preserve that history. So it feels like I'm creating a document but just doing it in a different way that sort of combines these different textural elements. So that's, it It feels like it's very personal to me. Yeah. I remember when I was sort of reading up on your practice, you talked about, you know, using photographs to understand memory and imagination mm-hmm. and this idea of like the physical evidence of black life. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Yeah. Which sounds like a really sort of beautiful way of putting it. And you know, I guess, what kind of draws you, do you think, to to that exploration out of all the things of that sort of like personal history, and you said kind of like connecting to the shared histories as well. But I I guess, you know, not to get too kind of like esoteric, arty question about that, but you know, (laughs) sort of like, like, what does that, what does that kind of like mean to you in terms of like the emotional place that it takes up for you and, and, and why you find it fruitful to explore? That's a great question. I think it's it's important to me to lift up Black folks and lift up our narratives and really just show the complexity and just the beauty of our lives. Um, so I think that's what draws me to it. And I just, I feel like I've known so many 
Black folks and Black women in particular throughout my life who are just natural archivists. So my mother-in-law, for example, um, she's a photographer, Marilyn Nance, and she's also a, a archivist. So she has inspired me to really think more deeply about preserving our stories. And there's so many different ways that you can do this. So I think this is just my way of doing it is through textiles, because that's something that I, I connect with just as, you know, something that I enjoy working with in terms of the material. And yeah, I, I see myself as part of a lineage, really. Um, mm. And another another woman that I have to, to shout out as well is my, my great aunt, Mary Matthews. She was a librarian and, and I believe was the first credentialed Black librarian in California. Um, mm. She did a lot in LA um, around trying to preserve Black history. So she collected um, and really championed a lot of Black artists in LA, like Betty Saar and Elizabeth Catlett. And so I'm, I'm really inspired by her legacy because she, another thing that she did too as well is that she um, promoted, at the time it was called Negro History Week. Mm-hmm. I think back in the 1920s and 1930s, which eventually became Black History Month. But she just always really championed preserving our stories and making it known that, you know, we're here and we've been here and it deserves to be documented. So I think something I think about as well is that we're in this digital age where so many of our photographs and our documents and things like that, they're, it's becoming harder to preserve them because, you know, a lot of these photographs, actually, when I started printing them out um, and working with them and, and translating them into screen printing, they were things that were sent to me. They were photos that were sent to me through my family on iMessage a lot of the time. <laughs> because it was like, you know, I'm here in New York and my sister and most of my family and my immediate family are in Seattle and they'd be going through like old photo albums and they'd take a picture with their phone and they're like, hey, look at this, you know, look at this picture of, you know, Aunt Bootsy or, you know, look at your granddad back in 1932. And I'm like, this is, it's just on my phone. Like I need to find yeah. a better way to preserve this. And I actually found that even if the photo itself is not that great of quality when it's, you know, when it's on my phone, that I could translate it into something that's a little bit more concrete through Photoshop. Cause that's what I use to translate everything into um, a printable image. So, you know, these pieces that I make are much larger than the original photographs, but it's, it's also, I feel like by adding color and texture and all that, I'm sort of bringing it to life in a different way. Mm-hmm. Although I still love the original documents, it's it just kind of takes it into another phase or another time period for me yeah. where it can hopefully survive a little bit longer. Absolutely. And I think there's there's something so significant to the context in which images are seen, you know, as as sort of, you know, going through a family photo album that can look like a million family photo albums, you know, and that, you know, people have one relation to that imagery, but when it's been taken, when it's been changed, when it's been put on fabric, when it's being seen in an art exhibition or on even digitally again on an artist's webpage, it's going to change the way people relate to that image. And it kind of becomes, as you said, this archive, this preserved history, this canon of an artist's practice that has a 
a staying power that unfortunately family photographs cannot uh, sometimes because it's just, you know, people see them more as ephemera or somehow like only important right. to the people who are in relation to them. But when you see right. them in another way, then you ask like, how does this relate to me in a more intimate way, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, because these these stories are all of our stories. I mean, so many of us have, you know, family photo albums that are, are really special moments. But like when you see those, it's you really think about your own relationships and sort of locating your place in the world. I think that's really what I'm trying to do through making this work is just trying to say, like, here's where I am and where we sort of all are on this continuum of time and space and history and you know, our lives are, our lives matter. Our lives are important. Mm-hmm. And I always think that there's something really significant too, when people can write their own histories, you know, rather than having just totally outside influence, you know, sort of come in and say like, well, this was the history, you know, but when, when people can say like, no, 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 this is my history. Like I can, <laughs> I can tell you what this history yeah. is. Like it, it is, belongs to me. And there's something, there's something really powerful about that because, you know, for so long, there was a very few handful of people who are allowed to write histories. And now with with the access that the digital age has brought us, there can be several narratives happening at the same time now, because it's not just whatever goes in the one history book that gets printed because they bid the lowest in Texas to print the history books. It's, you know, artists and archivists can write their own histories and document it and share it in in a way that's you know never happened before in the history of histories yeah (laughs) right (laughs) one of my favorite uh things that i read on your website sort of when you were talking about this is that you said that you believe in the in the possibilities that textiles and prints hold being record keepers as protection Mm -hmm. as tactile objects of enduring personal and cultural significance which was just such a beautiful way of putting that but I was really interesting that you put the word protection in there what kind of what did you mean by that I mean I think about textiles you know all the forms that they take you know in quilting you know it's it's protecting you from the cold it's you know covering you and also, I think to, to your point about history, it's like, you know, if you can create something that really sort of documents your your personal narrative and the collective narrative that's sort of protecting against disinformation that may be happening in the future, which I know is something we're, mm. we're thinking about a lot these days. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do, I just feel like it has this spiritual and this protective element to it, both physically and just you know, in terms of of creating something that hopefully will be there for future generations. And when you were talking about sort of kind of finding your place in the the history and in the world sort of through this exploration, and particularly as you're dealing with family histories and family dynamics, how did kind of becoming a mother and having a new generation and, you know, creating kind of your own family unit in that way – did that change the nature of the way you were sort of conceiving of families and family histories to to kind of be a part of that that passing of knowledge? Yeah, I think having my son, it really did make me think about, I mean, it just, it made me think about life in, yeah. in a different way, just in terms of 
the the biggest realization I had was just like there's no real blueprint or manual to life, you know, mm. because it's like one day you're just kind of going about your business and then you have this person that you have to care for and pass on whatever knowledge you have to and try to guide them toward coming into their own and mm. that really yeah it just it just made me think a lot about the folks in my family who had you know the things that they had sacrificed and the way that they really worked to you know to to stake their claim in the world and make their place in the world and just wanting him to understand where he comes from um because i i really feel like we all have such rich family histories and he's getting that in a lot of different ways he spends a lot of time with his grandparents with my uh his paternal grandparents um also live here in brooklyn because that's mm. where they're from and so he's just he's learning all these lessons about you know gardening and life and just you know she'll teach him like my mother-in-law marilyn she'll teach him about math by just saying okay we're gonna take some seeds you know, we'll take three here and four here and we'll make an equation out of it. And there's just like this really organic way that he's learning about life. And it, I don't know, this, I'm sorry, I'm like having a, a moment because I, I'm thinking a lot about what that means during the mm. pandemic. Yeah. Because I think this may not be the case for everybody, but for us, it's really become a time during this pandemic and everything that's going on to really become even more rooted in family just because that's our day-to-day now. We haven't been able to see friends as much as we would like, as I'm sure is the case for most folks. And there are other ways to connect. Like my son, he's <laughs> he's five years old, but he's already, because of remote learning, like he's already using an iPad and like sending text messages. <laughs> and he's like texting people all day, like, I love you so much. Oh <laughs> you know, sending videos and voice notes and everything. And it's just, it's, it's this weird duality because it's like on one hand there's all this technology that he's being exposed to but then we'll go from that to looking at family photos and you know me trying to kind of kind of like tell him about his his family history and yeah I I want him to feel like the world is very open and available to him mm-hmm. to explore but it, it does obviously feel a little bit more closed at this time um because you know before this happened like we we traveled to seattle i think once a year and we took him to basel switzerland which is where my my oh. brother lives and his um and my sister-in-law are out there and so he got to kind of see what life was like out there and you know we went to the top of the mountain and he was like learning about trams and all this stuff so it's been a really big shift to to parent during this time and really see like the the changes that have happened in terms of you know what he's what he's sort of absorbing exposed to on a day-to-day basis but to go back to thinking about my work as an artist I think yeah I just I just want him to have a, a really good solid foundation of who he is and I think creating this work is part of that for me. I think that's it's a really interesting aspect of, of what you do that I hadn't really thought of until I was just listening to you talk is that, you know, your work sort of as around conceiving histories and really creating that narrative for a family. I mean, it has to be so disrupted and also 
sort of changed by the fact that what is a family and how we define it and the way we interact with it has changed so much in the pandemic. Like this is the first time in my life that I have gone over a year without hugging my mother and father, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it feels so awful. Like, like, I can't think of any other word for it. You know, I, I totally understand. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Like in this, in this real, this real sense of, of loss that is surprising to me how much it affects me because, you know, I think we, we do have the illusion of being connected. Uh, you know, we can call and we can video chat and, you know, we can be close in other ways, but, you know, having the physical distance is surprisingly difficult. And just other things too, like I think, I think, you know, you and I are probably, I think basically the, the same generation, um, particularly because mm-hmm. if you, if you met your husband on MySpace, like, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. Dating We're, myself. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, I remember that. I had one of those. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, so my parents are in their, like, late 60s, early 70s, and, you know, just really feeling that that time slippage and that, you know, wondering, you know, how much are they going to change in a year? You know, how much am I going to see that time period in someone's life when they do change quite quickly, I think, or they can? It's very sad, and it's very... I don't know. It's I, I think I don't have the words for it yet because it's all so new, I guess. Yeah. I think that's kind of what I mean, I I really everything that you just said was like the way that I'm feeling as well. Because I it's like while I'm here in New York, you know, I do feel like I'm constantly surrounded. I mean, I'm surrounded by my husband and my son and the family that I've I've married into, like that they are my family, but Mm -hmm. I also, I do miss my family that I grew up with, you know, my, my sister and my parents. And, you know, like you were saying, your parents are in their late sixties and early seventies. That's, that's where my parents are too, in terms of the stage that they are in life. And I think they're missing, I mean, I'm missing the changes that they're going through as well, but also Mm -hmm. they miss his fifth birthday. You know, my son's fifth birthday, he, they always would come out here for his birthday every year and that didn't happen this year so I think a lot of what we're feeling right now is also just this this loss of what could have been you know like this loss of possibility or these things Mm -hmm. that we had all like everybody had plans they all we all had things that we were going to do so it's like well how do we how do we navigate that how do we just say okay well that's things didn't go as planned. So now what are we going to do? Like, how are we going to move forward? Because we have to move forward. We have to continue. Life continues on. Um, So yeah, it's, it's a very difficult time, but at the same time, you know, I've really been trying to find just like the small, the small joys in the day to day, which, you know, for example, this is, it's kind of maybe a little silly, but I, we went to Ikea last weekend and I found these perler beads, which I was like, oh, these are like, I, I had forgotten what they were called even. Cause you know, Ikea has their own name for everything. Yeah, <laughs> I think they called them like 
Plissa beads or something. Yeah, but, like Sven. Um, I yeah. Looked, yeah, I was like, <laughs> I looked them up and I was like, oh, these are parlor beads because they're the little the little plastic beads that you can make into a design on a pegboard and then oh, melt them right. together. Oh, I yeah. saw those. I wanted to get them because they were they're yeah. like from our childhood. Yeah. Yes, you should get them. They're so much fun. <laughs> So I I was sharing that with my son, like we were making these little designs and I was like, you know, I don't know. My husband was joking. He's like, you really got those for yourself. You didn't get them for for our son. (laughs) Um, But yeah, he enjoyed them too. Cause so he's like making, um, cause one of the heart, one of the pegboards that came with the set is in a heart shape. So he's making all these little hearts and so he'll make them and he's like, okay, mom, can you iron these for me? And I think what we're going to do is mail them to like family and friends. I told him like, let me know who you want to mail them to. So that's something I've I've been thinking about is just how can we, how can we leave a a record of this time just, you know, for purposes of history, which I think a lot of folks are thinking about just in terms of writing and creating. And, Mm. you know, I think everyone's sort of just working their way through it um, in that way which I think is, that's what we do, you know, because there's, this is not the first time that difficult times have happened Mm. in history. And, you know, we still have to continue on and create through those times. Um, Mm -hmm. But I really just take a lot of joy in sharing that with my son. Like I'm kind of like the arts and crafts (laughs) teacher for him (laughs) because, you know, it's like we wear all these hats. I mean, all of us do, but, uh, you know, as, as a mom, it's like, you know, that's one of the, the things that I obviously take a lot of joy in. And he seems to really enjoy it. So, yeah. 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 And that you get to get to wear like two of your hats at once. You get to be like mom and you get to be archivist <laughs> too, you know, where you're creating like physical, yeah. like that physical evidence, you know, of this time, which is that this very particular time when you had these hours at home with your family um, for a certain reason. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I really feel like a lot of folks are just, you know, this is my, uh, I don't know if this is a generational <laughs> reference, but just people digging in the crates, you know, when someone goes into the record store yeah. and looking through the crate. Yeah. That's what I always say when my sister, she'll send me pictures from, uh, you know, her, she has boxes and boxes of photos. So I would, I mean, I definitely think she's, got the archivist bug as well Mm. because she's going through and looking at um all these photos that she had I just I never knew that she had you know and same with my mom she's sending me photos on um iMessage that I just have never seen before and it's amazing because I'm like I remember these events I remember these things happening I didn't know that there was a photo that existed Mm. you know yeah. And I think, um, you know, I was talking about my aunt Bootsy earlier, who um, I'm creating this body of work around her life. And she just had her, both her and her husband, because she, I think, was probably the person that put together the photo albums, but her husband was more of the photographer because that was, that was his hobby. He was an engineer, but he also loved um, to take photos. He had his own dark room in the house. And when we went back to visit on Bootsy, because she lives in the Seattle, or she lived in the Seattle area back in October of last year, so about a year ago, my family and I were looking through all of her photo albums, and she had photos going back to the 1940s, and I was just like, I'd never seen these. She had all these amazing oh, wow. stories. She was talking about, you know, her old boyfriends and things, <laughs> like, 
she uh she had a boyfriend who went by the name of buttermilk oh my gosh and I was like, <laughs> we were just laughing we're like wow i'm Lucy. like you know you you were living the life like she used to go to the supper club and just i think you know especially as folks get more advanced in age like and you're you know i think when i was younger i didn't really necessarily take the time to learn about you know all this history and just who you know who were folks before they became parents like who was my mom before she became a mom and who right. you know who was on bootsy before she became on bootsy you know at one point she had a totally different name you know cuz her bootsy is obviously not her real name mm-hmm. um and it's just incredible to kind of have that texture of like seeing these, seeing your family members or seeing people that you know in a different light. And I also just really enjoyed those, those photo albums as well, because she did have photographs from certain moments that I remembered throughout my childhood that I, again, I didn't know the photos existed or I'd seen other photos that we had that maybe like my dad took or somebody else took. I was like, oh, this is kind of gives me another little piece of information. So there's so much information in these images that I think is, you know, it's just important to to take a closer look at. Yeah. And I think that's that's what you were saying about the um, not having that curiosity when you're younger. I definitely mm-hmm. identify with that is is that. There's something that's so, at least for me, I guess I should speak from the eye. Maybe not everyone was this way, but just that's so kind of inherently selfish about being a kid is that you you really think that the world came into existence with you, you know, like, because mm-hmm. you don't, you just don't know anymore, any better. You're, you've right. got this, um, this entire, you just don't have this long view, you know, your world is this house that you grew up in and the peop- the few handful of people you interact with regularly and and that's sort of it and then and then once you get out in the world and you start to see the expanse of it and i can imagine particularly like starting your own family this would happen too that family curiosity comes back and you're like oh like mm-hmm. my mom probably had boyfriends like what you know <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like before yeah. my dad like that kind of thing right um and that curiosity is is in it, it, almost sort of like a rite of passage. And then when you find out who people are not in relation to you, you know, sort of before you, it in a funny way, and I think it actually helps you find your place in the world a little bit more because you're like, okay, like, where do I come from? You know, like mm-hmm. even even if I before I existed, what was the what was the scene like? Uh, and it's such an interesting thing to explore, right? And I think a lot of people are doing. There's a um, a family letter in the Metcalves that's, uh, you know, I don't know, very, very, very many great grandfather of mine, you know, had 19 kids, and there's this um, <laughs> this family letter that was started by I think like the youngest of those 19 that just before the digital age, you know, was this huge, you know, manuscript that just kind of got sent around to all the descendants of Isaac Stevens Metcalf. And, you know, people would add on and say, like, this is the update. You know, this is who this is who died. This is who got married. This is who got divorced. This is who had kids. And this is what they're doing. And and that's gotten started up again uh, during wow. during the, the lockdown, of course. So I think wow. it's probably happening yeah, to, to many families that they're they're looking towards it. 
Yeah. And just going back to these family traditions mm-hmm. that you, yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Do you, uh, have you found yourself kind of maybe like within this context or another, like really having like a strong kind of creative reaction to everything that's happened in 2020? Um, or is it maybe more kind of like a, a time of, of reflection and, and that sort of thing as well? I think it's really, it has mostly been a time of reflection, yeah. but I've been thinking a lot about creating an archive of the histories or the stories of black mothers um, right now, because you know, I think it's it's important to speak about and document what you know, and that's that's what I know. That's who I am, or one yeah. of the things that I am, um, is a mom, and I I just want to have a record of how this time has affected us because yeah. I think there are a lot of layers with that. You know, it's been said. I I unfortunately don't remember who said this, but just that there are multiple pandemics happening for <laughs> for black folks in particular. Yeah. You know, I think that could be said for more than just black folks, but I think with all of the the talk about the political uprisings and you know, the racial injustice that's been going on for you know, for generations. Mm-hmm. Um that I think it's important to just check in and just be like, well, how, how are we doing? Like, how are we getting by? And, you know, I've done that just with my own friends and like with family members, but I just, I have this feeling that I want to create a larger record. So it's not necessarily related to my textile practice, but it's something that I've, I think is important to, to do. I guess it is sort of related and just in terms of, documentation archiving going back mm-hmm. to that yeah 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 definitely and um you know and, and kind of like creating a history of a really significant time you know not not just for the pandemic of course but for the fact in in 2020 for whatever reason it just seemed like the rest of the united states was like oh wait are, are you telling us things have been like bad for a while? Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. that's so true. It's so true because like, it does feel like there's this. I mean, I mean, people talk about being woke, and it's like, oh, we're we're waking up to what's happening, but it's like, no, these things have been going on for forever, for generations, mm-hmm. and yeah, I do find that kind of interesting that it's sort of news to some people that there's, <laughs> you know, there's racism and there's all these things still happening. But I mean, the pandemic is exposing it all. So I think we've seen that from the very beginning of it. I mean, it's just exposing all of the, the economic inequality and everything else, like the, the problems with our healthcare system. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just really, yeah, it's heartbreaking, but it's also like, okay, maybe there is some good that can come out of this if we can figure out how to make a shift, you know, if there's like a a mass realization that things are not the way that they should be. Yeah. And, and, you know, sort of, I want to say like, like touch wood, that'll happen, but that doesn't even seem like, 
that's good because like touching wood is for luck and it's like no like it's not luck it's work like people just need to do the work you know so like right um so you know and and you know documenting this time is going to be I think so important for the way like you and probably your family come to understand it but also as people who didn't live through it come to understand it decades from now and again you know like like the the voice of the history written by someone in the history, like the history of black mothers written by a black mother has vastly, vastly more significance than if it was written by anyone else. And so this is something that, yeah, that you can yeah. kind of take on. And I, I'm really excited to to see where that goes because it, it sounds like it's going to be really important work and, and I'm sure really beautiful work too. Yeah. yeah I'm just, I think what this time has made me realize as well yeah. is that, you know, everybody has something to contribute. You know, we all have our, our role to play in this time. And I think this this is a good time to figure out what that is, you know? Like you're documenting printmaking and documenting people's stories with Pine Copper Lime. And I think, yeah, it's 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 a difficult time, but it's also a time where folks can reflect on how they've been impacted and how they're, you know, the, those that they love have been impacted and you know, what's trying to, trying to create the way forward, I think is what I'm really thinking about. How do we, how do we each contribute something that can move toward making things better, (laughs) even just a little bit. And then, and that having to stop gives us the space and the impetus to do that. Like we're not just writing this wave of momentum where, you know, it's just like, it's like, I I can't, I can't think about that right now. Cause I have, you know, I've got my, you know, my private French lesson and then the kids have soccer and then I'm on the board for, you know, (laughs) blah, blah, blah. And then I've got this thing to do at work and then, oh, I have to be a wife too. You know, like, like all of that stuff that, that hit the pause button. It's like now there's space to think about, wait, what have I actually been doing (laughs) in my life? Yeah. Yeah, but it does feel weird because on one hand, I I feel like the pause button was hit, but then it wasn't. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> because it, you know we're also I think we're also doing a lot, and we're all working a lot, but it's just in a different way. So yeah, but I, I think there there are more moments of quiet. I do believe that because like you were saying, there's not this packed schedule that's expected of us as much. Um, mm-hmm in the same way, at least not to be there physically, we may have a lot of Zoom meetings, but it's not like, you know, I have to go here and there and, you know, which is not actually the case for everybody. But yeah, I think for a lot more people, there's there's a little bit more time to pause mm. and think about things. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, there's definitely people like, for instance, like healthcare workers who have found right. themselves with a lot less time. So yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. It doesn't affect everyone the same way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as we're kind of coming up to our like our hour recording mark here, is there anything in particular that you're kind of looking forward to on the horizon that you're you're getting excited about? You're talking about your new body of work, and of course, you know we talked about the election that's happening in a couple of weeks as well, which I'm sure is on on everyone's mind. But is there just anything else that's in your life that? maybe you haven't talked about yet that you just would kind of want people to know about and to keep an eye out for? I know talking about the future right now is kind of strange, but just want to make sure I didn't miss anything. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you for asking. 
honestly, I'm I'm just looking forward to. I'm I'm excited about some of the quilts that I'm making. Yeah. You know, in that aspect, in terms of art, but also just looking forward to some of the simple things like going to the pumpkin patch. Like yeah. I'm taking my uh, my son and we're going with our friends to uh, to the farm on Sunday. I'm looking forward to that. I yeah, and I'm looking forward to being able to travel again. Whenever that happens, I still am dreaming about being able to travel. Maybe going to Costa Rica or going to Thailand or other places. Um, so I, yeah, those are the things that I, I still dream about yeah. during this time. I have to say, sitting in, you know, 80 degrees in Bangkok, and I'm starting to see the pictures of the pumpkin patches, and like, oh, that gets me right, right in the homesick bone you know <laughs> just yeah that, especially with like uh with my husband being in a western new york autumn which is just the most romantic crisp you know like <laughs> like cartoon like order. tv right. yeah like tv autumn you know with like the the colors on the trees and i'm like well that's that's something else that's not my experience right now so yeah well i i really really hope you enjoy all of that and i i look forward very much to seeing you share the quilting that you've done um and maybe even pictures from the pumpkin patch and yeah <laughs> um and before yeah. we yeah before we sign off entirely can you let people know where they can follow you and find your work and see what you're up to yeah. Yeah, um, you can follow my work at uh, on Instagram at Steph M. Santana and on my website at stephaniesantana.com. Beautiful. Well, I will put a link in the show notes to both of those. And yeah, thank you so much for sitting down and chatting with me this morning. And um, I hope thank we get you. a chance to connect uh, again and maybe work together again. And yeah. Um, Come on over to Thailand anytime. <laughs> yes, thank you. Yeah, and enjoy the uh, the WTF yes, party. Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's hope it's enjoyable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Be wonderful. Yes. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Right. I will be in touch. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye. Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guests will be the founding members of the Radical Intersectional Printmakers Guild. We'll talk about what they're doing and how they're going about building a new printmaking organization from the ground up with intersectionality and accessibility at its heart. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing help from Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week. Thank you.